In this passage, we see a, a number of interesting things. We see that Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. Apparently, this is rare because usually the bodies of those who were convicted of sedition were left to rot on the cross, making a vivid example of what happens to those who oppose Rome. So this is further evidence of Pilate's sense that Jesus is not guilty and his desire to, in, at least in some sense and to some degree, exonerate Jesus. He allows the body to be taken down off the cross. We see that Nicodemus brings a mixture of myrrh and aloes, which is not strange in and of itself. We read that it was the burial custom of the Jews to bind a body in linen cloths with these spices. But what is surprising is the weight, is the volume. This would be the sort of burial normally reserved for kings, which is interesting considering that we've seen how John is at great pains in this section of his gospel to present Jesus as a king. Nicodemus apparently understands and brings enough myrrh and aloes to provide Jesus with a burial fit for a king. We read of the tomb that Jesus was laid in. We read details in this story that are specific enough that they don't have the appearance of mythology or legend to them. Generally, legends tend to be somewhat vague, but reading things like they stooped in but did not go in, who outran who, this is, this is the specificity that is often attached to eyewitness accounts. And so we are certainly reading history here, and we read a vivid account of exactly what happened and the order in which these things happened, who outruns who, and so on and so forth. We see that Jesus appeared to Mary in verse 15, and yet she supposed him to be the gardener. And so this fits with other passages of Scripture in which we see that there is some level of discontinuity between the body that Christ was crucified in and the appearance of his resurrected body. On the road to Emmaus, likewise, the disciples did not recognize Jesus. Just a, a chapter later, we'll see that again, the disciples are out fishing and they see Jesus on the land and they're not quite sure if it's Jesus or not. And so, well, Jesus was resurrected in the self-same body in which he was crucified. It's not an entirely different body, but it is the resurrection of the same body, which still bears the scars. There's nevertheless a, a difference. And we could go through this passage and we could look at all these little interesting points detail by detail and, and there's much richness to draw out here. But these are, none of these things are really the central thing in the passage that we just read. We see in John 19, 38 to 20, verse 18, this section which I just read, two main points which will serve as a basic outline for our sermon this morning. First... We see in this passage the fact that faith in Jesus often looks like and consists of gradual realization. People often do not come to faith right away the first time that they're presented with the truth about Jesus. 
And even at some point later, once they do come to faith, they do not immediately understand everything. This idea is exemplified very clearly in this passage in all of the merely human characters. And I say merely human characters as opposed to Jesus who is a man but not mere man and as opposed to the angels who are sitting in Jesus' tomb. The rest of the characters in this story have, are in a process of gradual realization. This will be our first point of study this morning. Second, we see in this passage what is the full truth of the resurrection which we gradually come to realize and appreciate. Namely, that God is Jesus' Father and Jesus' God and also our Father and our God. This will be our second point of study this morning. So let's look at each of these in turn as they're related to one another and as they're presented to us here as the main thrusts of this section of John's Gospel. Beginning with this, faith in Jesus often comes and always grows by gradual realization. Let me say that one more time. Faith in Jesus often comes, but it always grows by gradual realization. Those of us who are trusting in Jesus know this both from our own experience as well as from our observation of others coming to faith in Christ. It is not always the case. In fact, I would say from my observation that it is rarely the case that someone comes to faith in Christ Jesus on the first occasion that the gospel is clearly explained to him. If it was otherwise, the task of world missions would be quite simple, wouldn't it? Just go and tell people about Jesus and boom, you're done. Sometimes, obviously, people are converted in such a way. We realize that at times someone just hears the good news and believes, receives it with joy, and has roots, puts down roots. And that faith is not just a joyous enthusiasm and exuberance where they're caught up in the moment, but later it fades. Sometimes people just believe the first time, receive it with joy, and from then on they follow Christ. That happens. We can't deny that. But I would suggest that that is not the norm. And that often there is a process of people gradually coming to realize and accept the truth about Jesus. And then once converted, there is more gradualism. As we don't just immediately believe and then we understand everything. Next thing you know, we're lecturing at the, the seminary because we have all wisdom and knowledge. Some, especially, I'm going to say, especially young men, seem to think that this is the way that things transpire. But contra these young men who think that they know it all, having suddenly believed, in reality, it's not the case. And, and we all come to see in time that there's just a lot we don't know. And we gradually come into the truth more and more. There is gradualism. So coming to faith in the first place is often gradual. And then coming to understand the fullness of the things of God is also gradual. We see this in our own lives and in our observation of just how things work as we look at the people around us. We also see this principle exemplified in all of the merely human characters in this passage. 
In other words, everyone but Jesus and the angels. Consider first Joseph of Arimathea, of whom we read in verse 38 that he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. This has to mean that he had previously been a secret disciple of Jesus. Because now he's making a public and an open statement about his devotion to Jesus by going to ask for Pilate, pardon me, by going to ask Pilate for Jesus' body. Now, all of the events of Jesus' crucifixion were very, very public, as we know. There was the crowd crying out, crucify him. The chief priests, the Sanhedrin, obviously were still well aware of where Jesus' body was and what was happening. In fact, they asked that a guard be uh, posted at the tomb, lest Jesus' disciples come and secretly steal away the body. So it's not as if now that Jesus has been crucified, that this is not a public situation. Everything that's happening is still happening very much in the public eye. So for Joseph of Arimathea to go to Pilate and ask for Jesus' body that it might be laid in a tomb that he owns is a very open and very public statement of devotion to Jesus. So when we read that he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, what we have to infer is that he had previously kept his interest in Jesus secret. But now he is ready to make a public and an open statement of devotion to Jesus Christ, to request his body and to have his body laid in a tomb that he owns. And Nicodemus also, who according to verse 39, earlier had come to Jesus by night, Now, there are varying opinions about what the reason is as to why he came to Jesus by night. I'm of the opinion that it was largely due to the fact that Nicodemus wanted it to be discreet and that he didn't meet with Jesus during the day when the crowds were gathered around him, that he he wanted a quiet, secluded opportunity to ask Jesus the questions that he had. He was curious enough about Jesus to want to talk to him, but didn't really want to go on record as having talked to Jesus and and inquired of Jesus and possibly even learned something from Jesus or been, been taught or been helped by Jesus. Nicodemus still wants Jesus at arm's length as far as his public reputation is concerned. And yet here is Nicodemus now... Uh, again doing something like Joseph very public bringing enough myrrh and aloes for a kingly burial so you remember that the Sanhedrin went to Pilate after Pilate wrote the king of the Jews and posted it on Jesus cross and they said no 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 don't write the king of the Jews but write he said I am the king of the Jews in other words he's not a king well now here comes Nicodemus implicitly saying he is a king and let's give him a kingly burial you see gradualism in the lives of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus as they are now 
more ready to identify openly and publicly with Jesus than they had been earlier. Leon Morris says, Whereas the disciples who had openly followed Jesus ran away at the end, the effect of Jesus, pardon me, the effect of the death of Jesus on these two secret disciples was exactly the opposite. Now, when they had nothing to gain, humanly speaking, by affirming their connection with Jesus, they came right out into the open. There comes a time when, after thinking and deliberating and pondering the claims of Jesus and the promises of Scripture, someone decides, I am ready to publicly and openly identify with Jesus. Of course, at this juncture, neither Joseph of Arimathea nor Nicodemus could be sure that it was safe to publicly identify with Jesus. Maybe the mob would come after them too. It was just earlier in the morning that the crowd had been crying out, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Later this same day, when tension and hostility is high in Jerusalem and animosity great towards Jesus, it is later this same day when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus essentially say, Well, we're with Him. Maybe the mob would come after them too. Or at least they might be put out of the synagogue. As we were told in John chapter 9, was the threat against those who would publicly identify with Jesus. Look, if you're with Him, then you're out of the synagogue. So Joseph and Nicodemus make a decision that is costly, not just in terms of finances, giving Jesus an expensive tomb and an expensive burial, but costly with respect to their public reputation and possibly with respect to their own safety. No matter the cost, however, these men were finally ready to stop being secret disciples and to start being open and public devotees of Jesus. Is there anyone here this morning or watching online who needs to stop being a secret admirer of Jesus, hanging back out of fear and take that step to publicly identify with Jesus, to claim Him as your own. I'm with Jesus. This is what baptism and church membership, which really should ought to go together, are intended to signify. I am with Jesus, and I am to be numbered among His disciples. I'm with Him and I'm with them. When the lines are drawn between the world and those who have been called out of the world, I am to be numbered with those who have been called out of the world, who belong to Jesus. Moving on, we see gradualism exemplified in Mary Magdalene and in Peter and John also. For it is, it is John who is meant by the phrase, the one whom Jesus loved, as stated throughout the book of John and in chapter 20 and verse 2 again. It's just John's way of referring to himself in his gospel. Notice first that Mary's conclusion when she sees that the stone had been taken away from the tomb is this, quote, 
They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, what really happened? Jesus rose. But what is Mary's takeaway when she sees the empty tomb? Well, obviously, the enemies of Jesus have taken his body. She goes and she spreads this message to the disciples. Not, Jesus is risen. Rather, the message that she brings them is, the enemies of Jesus have taken his body, and we do not know where they have put it. Peter and John go to the tomb to investigate. And verse 8 tells us that John went into the tomb and saw and believed. Which many take to mean that John believed that the resurrection had happened. But that's not the thing that is being investigated and verified by Peter and John, is it? What was the report that they heard? The report that they heard was the enemies of Jesus have taken Jesus' body and put it somewhere and we don't know where it is. So Peter and John go to investigate and John goes in and sees that the tomb is empty and believes. So what does he believe? That the enemies of Jesus have taken Jesus' body out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. It's most natural to take this statement in that sense. This understanding is corroborated by the very next verse which says, For as yet they did not understand. John saw that the body wasn't there and believed Mary's report that the enemies of Jesus had taken Jesus' body from there. For as yet they did not understand. You see how that works? That fits. They did not yet understand the scripture that Jesus might rise from the dead. So this not understanding yet is applied not only to Mary, but it's applied to John, and it's applied to Peter. They were obviously devotees of Jesus. They, they followed Jesus, and they loved Him, and they believed in Him to the extent that they understood Him. But they encountered something which confused them. If Jesus was the Messiah, then how could He have died? You can almost hear John and Peter and Mary asking this question in their hearts. If Jesus was the Messiah, how could He have died? The statement of the unnamed disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 could also be inserted here as a statement of the confusion of Mary and John and Peter. We had hoped that He was the one to redeem Israel. Though it's not recorded for us that they said that exact thing, it's most likely, given their confusion and their misunderstanding, that they were thinking the same kind of thing. They were bewildered. They had believed in Jesus. They had hoped in Jesus. They had trusted in Jesus to the extent that they understood Jesus, but evidently they didn't understand Him very much. Because here they were, thinking now, instead of that Jesus had risen, that the enemies of Jesus had come and stolen Jesus' body away. Taken it somewhere. They were confused, bewildered. We had hoped He was the Messiah, the one to redeem Israel. 
But now he's dead. The enemies of Jesus have taken his body away. This is the state that they're in. Why was this the state that they were in? For as yet, they did not understand the Scripture. Are there any here this morning or watching online who truly believe in Jesus but have been confused or perplexed or are presently confused or perplexed about events that have transpired in your life, in the affairs of the world? If Jesus was the Messiah, how could He die? These original disciples wondered. Perhaps you have questions that you are disoriented about. Could it be that as yet you do not understand the Scriptures? Could it be that there is an answer to the things that you are confused about and perplexed about, but as yet you do not understand the Scriptures? You see, there is a process involved for all who come to faith in Christ Jesus. There is often a process, as I said earlier, with respect to coming to faith in the first place. And then there is most assuredly a process of coming to understand the Scriptures better after coming to faith. But until we understand... We are often confused and perplexed and bewildered by various things. We, the lowly disciples of Jesus, are so often like the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. As yet, we do not understand the Scriptures. And so we find ourselves, like these disciples, confused and perplexed. Yet though we are foolish, making us slow to understand and slow to believe, which was our first point this morning, showing you that there is this process and this gradualism for all the characters in this story. Joseph and Nicodemus and Mary and Peter and John. They're not instantaneously there, but there's this process. That was our first point this morning. We are very much the same way, in process. But though we are foolish, making us slow to understand and believe, our second point is this. Jesus loves us anyway and is committed to helping us understand. Look at verses 11 to 18. Jesus meets Mary in her confusion and perplexity and brings her good news. Gospel. And this good news was also teaching to help her understand. Though Mary was confused and perplexed, what does Jesus tell her when He meets her? When He says, Mary. And she turns around. He says something of substance to her. And what does He say to Mary, who is confused and perplexed? He tells her, Mary, God is your Father. And God is your God. That's in verse 17. Here is Mary Magdalene, 
whom Luke 8 tells us, from whom seven demons had gone out. In Jesus, she had found a new life. In Jesus, she had found a fresh start, a new beginning. And then Jesus up and died. No wonder she's in tears. No wonder she's bewildered and confused and disoriented. She's probably fearful. Now that Jesus, who sent the demons away, is dead, what if they come back? And so she's concerned and she's perplexed and she's confused and as yet she doesn't understand the scriptures. And Jesus appears to her, risen. Well, she is confused. Well, she is perplexed. And he tells her something that is reassuring. And he tells her something that is informative. At one and the same time. Mary, God is your Father. God is your God. You see how reassuring that would have been to Mary? That right there, even when she doesn't understand, right then, in that moment, while she's in process, God is her Father. While she is in process, God is her God. And you see how it's also informative because it actually helps her understand the significance of what has just happened with Jesus' death and with Jesus' resurrection. It is the outcome of the death and the resurrection that God is Mary's Father and that God is Mary's God. You see, Mary had hoped for Jesus to stay alive and be something for her. Something to her. She obviously had some hope in Jesus, which was stripped from her and taken away when Jesus died. She saw that as the end of hope. So she obviously, given the fact that she was despondent, had been hoping for something from Jesus. What was it? We're not told. But she obviously was hoping in Jesus in some way and to some extent because Jesus' death makes her despondent. It's obvious though, since she didn't understand from the scriptures that Jesus had to die and rise, it's obvious that she wasn't understanding and hoping for the right things, the correct things from Jesus. Or she wouldn't be despondent. She'd be like, well, this is all happening according to plan. Obviously. It's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He'll be alive again in three days. This is not the attitude of Mary. She doesn't get it. She doesn't understand. Likewise, Peter and John had hoped that Jesus would not die, but would stay alive and be something for them. Again, they were not like this is all unfolding according to what God's hand had predestined to take place. They were confused as well and believed that the enemies of Jesus had stolen Jesus' body away. So obviously their understanding was lacking and they were hoping for the wrong things. So, so they were mixed up, which led them to confusion and perplexity when Jesus died. Jesus appears to these despondent disciples. 
first to Mary in this passage before us, and then via Mary, he sends this message to the disciples. Whatever you had been hoping for, you were wrong. But you were not wrong to hope. Whatever you had been hoping for from me, you were misguided about. But you were not wrong to hope in me. Right here in your confusion, God is your Father. Right here in your perplex perplexity, right here in your mixed upness, God is your Father. God is your God. You see how right there, automatically, that's really reassuring. But not only is it reassuring, it's informative. Jesus is teaching them that through what He accomplished at the cross, God is their Father and is their God. See here the fulfillment of that Old Testament refrain that we read time and time again from Genesis to Malachi. God's promise that I will be their God and they will be my people. Now, through Christ's death and resurrection, God is your Father. God is your God. The fulfillment of this promise, I will be their God and they will be my people. You see, the disciples didn't yet understand the significance of Jesus' death on the cross. And they didn't yet understand that the resurrection had even happened, let alone the significance of the resurrection. They are foolish and slow of heart to understand and to believe all that the prophets have spoken. But Jesus doesn't therefore cast them off. He meets them in that place and reassures them and teaches them. He says to Mary, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. And phrasing it that way preserves the uniqueness of His relationship to the Father as the only begotten Son. But He most certainly includes the disciples in His relationship to God. The same God who is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as the Apostle puts it later, is also the God and Father of us. Jesus tells Mary, go and tell my brothers this. He wants all of us to know it. He is our brother now. God is our Father now. God is not just God generically, but God is our God, particularly now, as a result of what has just transpired, as a result of the, these confusing and perplexing events which have just transpired in Jerusalem. God, Jesus says, is my Father and your Father. God is my God and your God. Through Christ Jesus, God makes His dwelling with us and makes us His own. By offering up Himself to bear the punishment we deserved and by clothing us in His righteousness, this great exchange that happened at the cross, the curtain barring access to the most holy place in the temple was torn in two. 
signifying that all of God's people may have the access to God previously reserved for high priests. That all of God's people may go into His very presence. We sang earlier from Psalm 84 that it would be blessed to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. Just out there at the outer court letting people in and out of the tabernacle. Man, what a blessing. How much more blessed than to be a high priest and to go all the way into the most holy place. But lo and behold, the gospel is even more glorious than this. That we have not only the access of high priests, but the access of sons and daughters through what Jesus has done. We are not just doorkeepers in the house of the Lord. We are not just high priests in the house of the Lord. We who have believed are sons and daughters in the house of the Lord. And this as a result of Christ's work for us. The disciples were absolutely bewildered by Jesus' death. They were bewildered when they saw the empty tomb. Jesus comes to them right there in their confusion and in their perplexity. Reassures them. God is your Father. God is your God. Even though you don't understand. It's not your understanding that merits God being your Father. It's not your understanding that merits God being your God. We don't have to become intellectually deserving of the Gospel any more than we have to become morally deserving of the Gospel. Even if you don't understand everything. Even if you're in process. If you're trusting to Jesus, trusting in Jesus, hoping in Him, looking to Jesus, God is your Father. God is your God. That's tremendously reassuring. But it's also instructive for us to see that what Jesus does is He takes their confused ideas about what has happened and He corrects them. And He helps them to understand. No, no, no. They didn't steal my body away. I have risen. And when I died, it wasn't the end of hoping in me. It was the basis of hoping in me. Because I died and because I rose, that's why you can hope in me. So you shouldn't be all despondent and confused and perplexed and bewildered and discouraged and weeping. Because I died and rose. God is my Father and your Father. God is my God and your God. You see how there's this reassurance and also this instruction at the same time. In this one statement, Jesus brings comfort of the gospel to the confused, to the perplexed. And at the same time, Jesus brings help via instruction, via doctrine to the confused and to the perplexed. Though Mary and the disciples are in a process, not yet understanding fully, though they are not yet understanding as they could have, for it had already been revealed, remember? It was in the Scriptures. And it was the Scriptures that they didn't yet understand. 
they could have understood from the Scriptures. And because they, sh- they could have understood from the Scriptures, really, by rights, they should have understood from the Scriptures. Which is why Jesus calls the disciples who didn't understand in Luke 24, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. We have a responsibility to understand the Scriptures. See? So even though they could have understood, and therefore, even though they should have understood, but didn't, and they were in this process of not understanding fully, right there, right then, Jesus meets them in their ignorance and in their confusion with gospel. Good news that God is their Father and their God. Are you in some sort of process? Perhaps not yet ready to identify publicly with Jesus. Perhaps not yet understanding the Scriptures as you ought and perplexed and confused. You might be at the stage of unbelief, not willing to accept that there was a resurrection. Or maybe you might be at the stage of wondering if, in fact, there was a resurrection or not. Or you may believe that there was a resurrection, but you're not really sure what the significance of it is. Maybe you're at an early stage of the Christian faith and there's very little that you know. Listen, the resurrection of Jesus happened whether you believe and understand it or not. And because the resurrection of Jesus happened, whether you believe and understand it or not, the objective facts of the gospel are still true. And there are, there is hope out there then. And there are answers out there then. Even if you don't understand it. The Christian faith, what becoming and being a Christian looks like, is embracing a process. First, of coming to believe and hope in Christ in the first place. Understanding enough to realize that He is your only hope of salvation from sin. Understanding enough to know that there is a better world coming because of Him. And trusting Him to save you and to resurrect you to live with Him in that better world. And then, being a Christian is a process of understanding more and more about the significance of who Jesus is and what He has accomplished for us, including the resurrection. It's a process of understanding more and more the things of God as they are revealed to us in the Scriptures and then learning to be guided accordingly. Not only with, um, not only with reference to our Affairs, the decisions we make, the choices we make, but also with respect to our affections, so that we're not confused and perplexed and bewildered and despondent, but hopeful and joyful in Christ. Do not wait, or do not try to wait, I should say, because it's a hopeless endeavor. Do not try to wait until you understand everything before you come to faith in the first place. There's an old hymn that says, if you tarry till you're ready, you will never come at all. The same holds true for understanding. 
We can understand enough without understanding everything. But when you understand enough, just come. Because it's still a process. Even after you come. You're still going to be in process of learning and understanding the scriptures. I hate to say it, but even after you come to Christ, you're still going to be a foolish one and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You see, it's not, it's not just that the people outside there are the foolish ones. It's us too. Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So when you come to Christ, you're embracing a process of learning and growing. Don't be discouraged, Christian, at your lack of understanding. You are at your place in your process right now as Mary and Peter and John were at their place in their process and Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were at their place in their process. Realize that Jesus is willing to meet us right there at whatever place we are in the process with good news. That looking to Him, even with the most simple and childlike faith, God is your Father. God is your God. Because of what Jesus did in His death and in His resurrection. And Jesus is willing to meet you there too with doctrine. To help correct your misguided ideas. To help you understand more. Just because Jesus meets you in your ignorance and in your confusion with good news. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that you're doomed to remain in ignorance and confusion forever, nor that He wants you there forever. He meets the disciples here and not only reassures them and comforts them, but instructs them. And so He does with us at every stage of our process. He meets us with continuous good news that you're still loved, that yeah, you're mixed up, you don't understand everything, you're confused, you're perplexed, you thought wrong about this, you made a wrong choice about that. Look, God is still your Father. God is still your God. But He also is more gracious than that. And that He also helps explain to us how we were misguided. In what way we misunderstood. As He did with the disciples here. He explains to them more clearly what happened in His death and in His resurrection. It wasn't the end of hope, but the basis of hope. People didn't steal away his body. He rose. And because he rose, God is your God. God is your Father. And so at the end of it, there, at the end of this process, Mary is not only reassured, but she's instructed. She's not only comforted, but she's taught. She understands better what was the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection. Christ has made God our God and Father in spite of our ignorance and confusion. As I said, Jesus hasn't come for the intellectually deserving any more than He came for the morally deserving. Even when we're morally bankrupt and intellectually bankrupt, God may be our God. God may be our Father. Jesus will meet us right there. Just like He helps us become holy, so He helps us understand the things of God. Though He Himself has ascended to His Father and our Father, to His God and our God, He hasn't left us as orphans. We still have the Scriptures. And we have not only 
the teaching offices of the church to help us understand. But we have the Spirit of God who illuminates our understanding. And we're commanded and we're exhorted and we're encouraged to read the Scriptures for ourselves also. God, by the ordinary means that He has appointed, the careful reading and study of Scripture, the proper application of hermeneutical principles, biblicals of, principles of biblical interpretation, sitting and listening to instruction, and prayer, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Lord will instruct us. Christ, the shepherd of the sheep, has not left His sheep to make their way in darkness. He has given us a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So realize, in spite of your ignorance and your confusion, Christian, the resurrection was for you. That no one came and stole Jesus' body away, but that He rose. And because of Jesus' death and resurrection, God is your Father, and God is your God. This is tremendous, tremendous good news.